welcome to the Academy Podcast, a podcast dedicated to sharing rich content for the purpose of spiritual growth. I'm your host, Shalom Agdarab. The Academy creates transformative space for people to connect with God, self, others, and creation for the sake of the world. To learn more about the Academy, visit academy.upperroom.org. The wisdom guide we hear from today is Ray Buckley. Ray is the director for the Center for First Nation Spirituality and longtime faculty member of the Academy for Spiritual Formation. Ray has served the United Methodist Church as a staff member of the United Methodist Publishing House, director of the Native People Communication Office, and director of Connectional Ministries and Native Discipleship for the Alaska Missionary Conference. He is the author of multiple books and resources for all ages. His stories, poetry, and art have appeared in numerous journals, periodicals, and books around the world. Ray and his brother Rick make their home in Palmer, Alaska. As an indigenous person in North America, Ray speaks with authority about what it takes to be reconciled across walls meant to keep people and creation apart. Where I am located in Washington, on the land of the Puyallup, every time we gather in our space, we make time to acknowledge the Puyallup who have tended this land where we live and work, who teach us to steward this land, and who invite us today and every day to consider what it will take for Indigenous folks and all historically marginalized people to have more access which leads to greater equity in all areas of life. It will take a lot of love and imagination to break down the walls of racism and settler colonialism that runs through our country's past and present relationships with native people. What are the walls that prop up isolation and fear in your own life? What walls are meant to protect but in light of the incarnation As God has come into the neighborhood, only bring more harm and disconnection with more different kinds of people. You're in for a storytelling treat. Please listen on, dear one, and as you listen, breathe deeply and expand gently. A community leader came to see Jacob, hoping to find peace of mind or an ease of his burden. The man was troubled by a repetitive dream that he did not understand. Jacob, he said, in my dream, I have traveled a long distance and I am finally arriving at a great city. But at the entrance to the city, I am met by a tall soldier who says I must answer two questions before I am admitted. Will you help me? Jacob simply nodded. The first question the soldier asked me is, what supports the walls of a city? That is easy, said Jacob. Fear supports the walls of a city. But what supports the fear, asked the man, for that is the second question. Fear is supported by the walls, answered Jacob. The fears we cannot climb become our walls. The fears we cannot climb become our walls. 
we live in a world where there are so many fears and so much ignorance, so little tolerance, because the fears we cannot climb have become our walls. And what supports the city are the walls, and what supports the walls are our fear. And so we begin to build more and more and more walls. I appreciate so much Genesis homily yesterday. I appreciated her beautiful voice and her Caribbean diction. It brought joy to the spirit of the moment. The simplicity of the message that competition destroys relationships in and around the church, jealousy of each other. We learn that we expect it in our workplaces outside of the church, but because we are human beings, it is ever-present inside of the church. We wish to appear to be sometimes more than what we are. In North Carolina flag, there's a, a phrase across it in Latin, esse quom videre, to be rather than to appear to be. We are to be that the excellency of the power may be of God and not of ourselves. But when we feel jealousy toward one's assignment or jealousy toward one's gifts, when we struggle with criticizing the smallest thing, I like the line that is in the book, Painted Drum, and it describes a woman that said she had a masterful gift of doing very small things with great flair. And sometimes within our church work, we are so conscious that whatever we do has to be done with great flair, not only because there are pressures upon us to do that, how much of our ministries have eroded into piles of paperwork, how much have we traded faith in the daily world, spiritual survival in the daily world, for productivity within the reports that we do in the areas that we live. I told you a little bit about the church of which I attend and am a part, and about how the men begin a Bible study. They actually came and asked 20 years ago, it's been that long, 20 years ago, if we would help with leading a Bible study. They had contacted the pastor of my denomination in our town. They had gone with some needs. I had a call on my phone from this pastor that said that there are Native people who are coming and they have a lot of questions and they need need some help. And that pastor said, I am too busy to be bothered by this. I was traveling a lot with my work at that time for the general church. And so, but I said, yes. And I 
called them and they said, we need a Bible study. And so we began, we started with the book of Nehemiah. Or coming back to Jerusalem, they begin to build the walls that are tumbled down. They begin to restore the walls of what they once knew. What a message for us. Because in the middle of it all, a hundred years ago, when the first epidemics came of the Spanish flu, it literally killed 60% of the native people and the missionaries who were here told us that it was God's judgment because we did our dances and spoke our languages. And the missionaries outlawed both. And the people that died the most in the Spanish flu were the younger people, the middle-aged, and the children and the elderly left, and villages were left without spiritual guides. I teach in a manner that is not Western. I teach as if I'm teaching history, not so much stories as stories, but history and culture and place and religion and theology. We would call it weaving them together. It's the traditional way that is often used in parts of Asia and among many indigenous people or first peoples. In this way, when we talk, I am not confronting you with something specific. But in the conversation, in the weaving, hopefully, and in the sharing of people's lives and their history and our cultures and our beliefs, that they are woven together and that inside of you, in the message that is very similar in some ways to the teachings of the way teachers function in Zen Buddhism and in First Peoples cultures. To give you an element of information and culture that will impact your spirit. So the question is not if anything I have taught you who are wiser than me, what have I taught you? But what have you heard in the weaving of together that is informing your life? We can sit together and talk about what is important and what is not important, but what you weave together, what you have heard the Spirit say, how it has addressed the situation in which you say. When you then share the history and the culture with other people, what you share of importance may be different than what I have. As Genesis reminds us, we are not in competition. I would remind us that there is no conflict in divine assignments. We think that somebody else has achieved something of notoriety, but there is no reason, brothers and sisters, that we should be resentful or jealous of anyone. Francis of Assisi, who I love reading about. Francis said that they would wish to call him Brother Superior in his community. And he asked that they call him 
brother inferior, not because he had a low sense of self-worth, but a high sense of the worth of other people. It is the walls that we build to protect the city and fear that support our walls. And I remind myself every day as I remind you this morning, it is not about institutions or structures. We are people of faith who have survived disease, genocide in every country of the world, racism among every people of the world, pain, war, conquering. And so that when we move forward, the first thing that we do is to build a wall because the wall is supported by our fears. I have often wondered in the description of Jericho, it wasn't just the walls falling down, but the walls falling out. And I've often wondered in my mind as I have read that scripture, that this was what God was saying, perhaps I am imploding the walls. The things that marked your security, the things that you built your fears upon and built a wall, and so now you are secure behind them, then God implodes them or explodes them, and the walls are not there anymore. I have a, a friend who's a, a Russian Orthodox priest, and we uh, often get together and share meals, or in these days we talk by Zoom or over the phone. Several years ago, he said, I have a joke I want you to hear, and it came out of his religious background. So it was something he shared with me so that I might have laugh. He said, Jesus was preaching to the multitude, and they brought to him a woman who had been caught in adultery, and they gathered around her, and they picked up stones. And Jesus said, whoever among you is without sin, let him cast the first stone. And a little old lady got up, picked up a boulder, and threw it in the pit and wiped the woman out. And Jesus said, you know, Mother, sometimes you really bug me. In his tradition, <laughs> it was a great humor. My brother Rick, who lives with me, my brother has scars on his back where before he came to live at our house, he was burned with cigarettes on his back. He can't see them, but the scars are there burned with cigarettes on his arms, a scar that runs from here to here where he was struck, back of his skin split open, damage to his brain and to his skull. He's the kindest, most compassionate person that you would ever want to meet. Rick knows everybody in the neighborhood. He knows the name of every dog. 
of every cat, of every person. He doesn't always get the names exactly right, but he can describe people in great detail. He is the wisest person that I know. We spend each evening before we go to bed, sometimes sitting on the edge of my bed in my room, sometimes on his, and I go in sometimes when it's my turn to visit him. And he's sitting on the edge of the bed with his hands folded, waiting for me to come into the room. We pray for each other. I love my brother's prayers. Long after I leave, before we pray, we have a tradition. Years ago, when I was over in Italy for a while, an extended period of time, I had a, a person that was French who was there at the same time I was at the Pontifical Biblical Institute. And so I was teaching Rick by phone little things. Te amo. I love you. Je t'adore. French for I love you. You get a good night's sleep. Don't you be scared. When I called back one evening, Rick met me with Te Amo. And I said, Te Amo. And he said, Slam the door. And I said, What? And he said, Slam the door. And I said, You mean shut the door? And he said, No, not shut the door. Slam the door which means I love you very much. And every night is the ritual, te amo. Slam the door. Michaelo Piccolo, which means Piccolo Angelo. You get a good night's sleep. Don't you be scared. Don't you have no bad dreams. God loves you. And I say, God loves me. I'll see you in the morning. I'll see you in the morning. I go into my room just before I close the door. Rick will say, you come and get me if you need me. And I say, yes, you come and get me if you need me. And I'll almost go to close it again every night. And Rick says, good night, I love you. My brother reaches out to the community, invites people into our house, shares whatever he can, makes small things, gives small things. His impact, his personal impact on this small world is enormous. More than a sermon, more than a place, more than a denomination. He lives out his face, faith. The scars on his back, 
the scars on his arms. My brother does beautiful things with his hands and he gives them all away. That's not only our tradition, but that's him. He makes things for somebody not to make something beautiful, to make something beautiful for somebody, and he gives it away. It's the power of reconciliation, not for individual harms or individual pain or always for a person who has harmed him, but out of the harmingness has come love. Out of the ability to make beautiful things and to exceed what has been done to him, reconciliation takes place not always with a difficult person, but with all persons. My pain is reconciled. I choose to live above it all and to live in relationship with you. Te amo. Slam the door. Monty Roberts, uh, and you can look Monty up on the internet. Look under the words, join up. Monty Roberts is a large man. He really initiated the idea that others also had thought and felt of being able to break horses, as we would say, break horses without harming or threatening or doing them abuse. And he came from a home where his father would tie horses up and leave them for hours. If they didn't do what his father said, his father would force them into fear by hitting them, tying them up, striking them. He also did the same to his family. And the little boy who grew up into a very tall, powerful man who had played football in college and but the little boy would go out and sit on the hillside and he would watch horses, the wild mustangs, and he would learn the language of Equus, he called it. He would watch their ears move when they were ready to welcome somebody into the herd. They would start chewing and he would, uh, they would start chewing and then licking their lips. It was a sign that they are in the middle. They are a sign that they are accepting of each other. Their body language would tell them, tell him what it was they were trying to say. And he went to his father and he said, Dad, I want to show you what I've learned. And he took a Mustang. And within very short period of time, the horse had followed him, and his father beat him with chains, and he was put in the hospital. As he grew up, people would listen to him more and more until one day Queen Elizabeth invited him to England. 
And he changed the world the way that horses are trained. And in a matter of minutes, a wild horse who has never been ridden, who has never been touched by a human brain, can be brought into the ring. And this is what Monty does. He takes the horse and he encourages it to run in a circle. Run the way you want to. Put up your wall of fear. Run the way that you want to, the furthest that you can. And when the horse starts to stop, he encourages it to run. And then he moves to the other side to get the horse to turn around the other way. The horse explores the round ring. And the single man or woman who is in the middle encouraging it. And the horse will stop. And it will look at him. And then the horse will run, want to run away. And instead of grabbing a rope and pulling the horse toward him, Monty Williams pushes the horse away. Okay, you want to run away in fear. Please do. I'm right here. I'm right here. Run. Run in circles. Run the other way. I'm here. And when the horse stops, Monty turns his back to the horse so that the horse can see him and yet know that there is no intent from him to harm him. And the horse invariably comes up and as horses do, with his back turned toward the horse, the horse will walk up behind him and take its muzzle and prod the back of his neck or anyone's neck, saying, you're okay, you're safe. I'm joining up with you. I'm part of your herd, you're part of mine. And from there, the saddle is a small thing. But what develops between the rider and the person is an immense sense of trust, a wonderful, glorious sense of trust. And the horse and rider respond to each other out of that relationship, that trust. Monty Roberts would say, think of all the animals who have been put down or abused over the many centuries because nobody learned their language. It altered my way of viewing salvation and my way of viewing the world. We come into wounded communities or communities where people are afraid, but some people are hostile and angry 
and they begin to put up walls because they're afraid. And they hold on to the walls because the walls protect their concepts. And their concepts hold up the walls. Our group of people in this town decided to meet. They decided native community and the men came and worshiped and a lot of them had been abused by their wives. In alcoholic homes, there is very seldom just one abuser when alcoholism affects the whole family. And they came and they were fishermen and construction workers. When we meet in the summer, we meet Sunday evening because they have to fish all during the day to make enough money to survive the winter and work because of the long days is stretching through the summer. We, we have midnight church softball games because it's still daylight at midnight. We made balm of Gilead from cottonwood trees. When the buds begin to come out, they smell like balsam. That's part of our traditional tools for healing. We make a salve from that, and oh, folks, it heals sunburns and small cuts. The men would come to our house. We would eat together. We, we, we rebuilt the wall that Nehemiah had put. We got to the part where Nehemiah says, I had a vision of saying to each man, Part of this wall is where your family lived before slavery. Before we were carried off into Babylon, part of this wall was where your family lived. And I told the men, rebuild your portion of the wall. There is such enormous wisdom in saying, rebuild where your heart is. Rebuild where those you love are. Not Here's this massive plan for the whole wall around Jerusalem. But you, you start where your heart is. And we'll help. The men would come in, their hands tired, they would dirty clothes, we'd eat a meal together mostly fish and baked potatoes. And I had a balm of Gilead ointment out on the counter so that they could put it on their hands. So when they would come in to the house, they would take the balm of Gilead and they would put it on their sunburned faces and on their cuts and things of their hands. And then it began so that whenever anybody came into the room, they would go to the balm of Gilead jar, which they all had in their own homes, but they would go to that jar and they would put it on their hands and they would put it on their face. It became a tradition of a small worshiping community that before you walked in to worship or into the door, you took the gift of healing. You took the gift of healing and you put it on yourself. You took responsibility for your healing in this community, but you would walk in the door and walk right to the healing 
in our traditional services, again, referring to Genesis homily, we take very seriously the word to remember in Lakota means to pull into the marrow of your bones. So when Jesus says in our translations, as often as you do this, do this in remembrance of me. Jesus is saying that when you gather together in community, or when you gather together outside of community, Pull me into the marrow of your bones so that you are changed from the inside out. So that your body and your mind is strengthened. As often as you gather together, it doesn't matter if it's the orange juice or fish oil. Here we use Korean plum tea because we have a plant very similar and the plums are bitter, but when they're made into a tea from this Arctic region, they have a sweetness that is beautiful. And in the far north, our elders take dried fish and they dip it into fish oil because your body cannot live without the oil. You can have pure protein, but your body cannot live without the fat of the oil because we have no one to serve as communion. We break the spiritual law. We break the ecclesiastical commands. And our elders take dry fish and they dip it in seal oil and says, this represents the offering of Christ, the swimmer who comes to sustain us. And we dip it into the oil of life which makes it possible for us to spiritually live. And in the amount of time it would have taken, our people, when they gather together, when they realize that they have done something to offend someone, they go and make restitution. And if they cannot, they stand to the outside of the room. That is an awful song. And here's God. In the middle of the circle, though you are broken and though you are afraid, I will not destroy you. And when you want to run, run. I am here. I'm not going to punish you from the running. I will help you. Go far away to know that I am here. Keep running if you are afraid. And when you are ready to stop, I am here. And we come tentatively to God as people from different cultures and different beliefs and different backgrounds. We come tentatively to God. And we put our nose against the back of God's neck. 
And God says, Te amo, Michael Opecolo, slam the door. I am here. I get amused sometimes. We're often told in our churches that we should not sing Christmas carols until Christmas time. Oh, it's a tremendously big issue. We don't sing Christmas carols until Christmas. We sing Advent carols. Native people sing Christmas carols all year round. It makes no sense to them theologically that God has come and every year we pretend that God has not come until Christmas. I had one of our pastors, Anglo pastors, become incensed in a native service when people were singing the Christmas carols. One of our elders said, you know, what is sometimes more important to me than Easter is the incarnation. For God could have provided for the world in any way. God could have provided for the world in any way. God chose to meet the needs of the culture to which God was addressing within their language. And she was elderly. And she said, but when God chose to be incarnate into our world, God was making a decision that could not be reversed. And when God suffered, illness and pain and loss of family, and ridicule. It said to me that God moves into community with us. God has moved into our village, and half the time we pretend that God isn't even here. We sing Christmas carols because they are a gift. We spin a star, go from house to house with a star made out of wood, and it spins and then on the Orthodox Epiphany, we go from house to house and we spin that star and we sing songs and people invite us in to share what food they have. And it goes day and night to remind people that the star has shined in our village. Certainly the cross but also the incarnation. And the presence of the Holy Spirit is reconciliation. It is the voice of God that says, you have pulled away. You have built walls of pride and criticism and walls of fear. It protects your city. It protects your denomination. It is, protects your church. You have built all of these things. 
until you, if you separate the fear which supports your institutions, and if you'd separate the institutions, you have the fear and all of it. Let me fix that. I don't want the burnt sacrifice and the abomination. And when God enters the world in the incarnation, it's reconciliation. When Christ dies and is risen, it's reconciliation. When the Holy Spirit comes to in aid and empower us, not by your might or your power, but God's, to be a comforter, it's reconciliation. And how do we do less? When I choose to be reconciled, I choose to take a really good look at those walls and a really good look at these wounds and say how much of what I hold is pride and fear. And when I let go, what will I be left with? And then God says, I'm here. God has journeyed with you with deep love and compassion. Have you found that the things that mark your security have been imploded by the spirit? Perhaps there are markers of your life that buttressed have helped keep up your privilege and comfort. How has the abiding presence of the divine made those things like the walls of Jericho come tumbling down? Ray's words hit close to home as he talks about walls of fear and pride, as he names the institutions that are held up by fear. In my own life, I pray desperately in these moments that the Holy Spirit will enter the world will enter my own church in a powerful way, frankly, because I'm tired. I'm tired of binaries, of either or thinking of the fear mongering that produces anxiety and more scarcity. I do not believe these are fruits of the spirit. And yet it is evident that we have been eating from toxic trees for the worry and fear is written all over our liturgies, in our body language, and in our lack of imagination, our lack of of a prophetic stance that another world, a reconciled world, is indeed possible. Nevertheless, God whispers, whether it's in Ray's words or in Rick's vernacular, I'm here. And I have to trust that as wounded and as tired as we are as pilgrims on this spiritual path, 
with terror and violence and environmental degradation threatening our existence, that loving presence is always waiting for us to turn around, come back home, and try again. To hear more from faculty and wisdom guides like Ray, join us at the next online or in-person Academy retreat. For more information, visit academy.upperroom.org.